listening to a Ruah episode of the St. Benedict's Table podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Howison. Today's episode features Malcolm Geit, a priest, chaplain to Girton College in Cambridge, theologian, musician, and poet. It is his poetry, or better, his poetic imagination, that lies at the heart of this episode. Now, we were bedeviled to use kind of word that Malcolm might choose, we were bedeviled by some transatlantic technical difficulties. And so rather than being able to record this as a conversation, in the end I had to send questions to Malcolm, which he answered on recording from the comfort of his own home in Cambridge. It's not the best way to conduct an interview, but for now it will have to do. Perhaps the seeds have been sown for a future follow-up conversation. I began by making the observation that over the years Malcolm has published a number of collections of his own poetry, two seasonal poem-a-day books, one for Advent and Christmas, one for Lent, which take readers through the work of an array of poets, all the while providing some reflection and insight on what's going on in each poem. I noted that he's also written the books Faith, Hope, and Poetry and Mariner, A Voyage with Samuel Taylor Coleridge. All of this taken together would strongly suggest that poetry lies close to the heart of his vocation as a priest. And so I asked him, would that be a fair assessment? Yes, I think it would certainly be fair to say that uh, poetry lies close to the heart of my vocation as a priest. Indeed, uh, my vocation as a Christian, poetry has woven its way in and out of my life, really for nearly all of my life. I had a lot of poetry in the air and recited by my mother when I was young. I didn't know it was poetry. I didn't know what this sudden lift and elevation and rhythm was when she suddenly launched into a passage. She never sat me down and said, now this is poetry, it's good for you. It just flowed naturally from her lips and transfigured the way we saw things together. So I was very fortunate in that respect. But uh, poetry also helped to bring me back to my faith. I had a fairly stormy adolescence, but I was sent away to a school in England, a boarding school, which I didn't like at first I was very homesick and um, one of the things that happened to me there was that I lost my faith and for a few years I tried to believe that there was no significance in anything that we were just uh, meaningless concatenation of atoms whirling about in the vacuum of space signifying nothing and that everything could be reduced to a physical base and then I was taken when I was in about 17 to to um, Keats's house in Hampstead and had a kind of epiphany reading Keats's Ode to a Nightingale and came away from it thinking this is not dust in the space, this is not the unwinding of a selfish gene, this is something transfigurative, something supernatural, spiritual is happening in the midst of this poetry. I didn't become a Christian immediately but I cracked open, as it were, the the concrete of my reductive science which had cut me off from so much of my childhood as well, so kind of the wells of childhood poetry returned. So there was a kind of preparatio evangelium from poetry which eventually led when I was studying English literature at Cambridge to my conversion fully to Christianity and also to a revival deep within me of the desire to write poetry so actually coming to understand that the word the logos had been made flesh and coming to love poetry and realizing that poetry is also a kind of making flesh embodying forth as Shakespeare says imagination 
bodies forth the form of things unknown, and the poet's pen turns them to words and gives to airy nothing a local habitation and a name. That was all fused together. In fact, my vocation to the priesthood itself partly arose from the fact that I was studying at the time I was doing a part-time PhD on Lancelot Andrews and John Donne, and through John Donne I got into George Herbert. And the combination of Donne and Herbert, both priests in the Church of England, both very active poets of different kinds, began to make me feel that although I couldn't see any priests that looked or felt like me among the contemporary clergy that I'd met, here at least were two guys in the 17th century that I'd have been glad to keep company with, and I figured if there was room for them, there might be room for me. Though once I was ordained, in fact, poetry had to take a back seat for about seven years because there was so much to learn and to do and to be in serving my church as a priest that it didn't get a look in. Though looking back, I realised that for me, the liturgy itself, and particularly the sacrament of the Eucharist was a kind of poetry, that here was another beautiful shape and form made of words, in and through which we were all invited onto an imaginatively transfigurative and helpful journey. But after about seven years, I had a little break and, and realised I needed poetry desperately. And rereading lots of poetry actually renewed and deepened my faith. So after that, I began to see that my vocations as priest and poet were really two sides of the same coin. My next question was to ask, what is it that the poet brings to the church in these current days in which many people see the church as being increasingly irrelevant, both socially and personally? I think the poet can bring something particularly important to the church in our contemporary culture, precisely because poetry deals with what's missing in the way we view the world more generally. I've written about this in a book called Faith, Hope and Poetry, but essentially I think it's well recognised now that we took a turn in the way we thought during the period we call the Enlightenment and at the beginning of the Scientific Revolution, very much favouring that capacity in us to analyse and to reason and to deduce and to work out constituent parts. And that's a very important capacity. I'm all in favour of using our reason. And uh, I think proper use of our reason will also bring us or gesture us towards a divine source uh, and a divine end or purpose in all things. But nevertheless, one of the effects of that change in the Enlightenment was to downplay our intuition, our imagination, our ability to discern meanings before we fully comprehended them. And of course, theology, as uh, as St Anselm said, is fides quirens intellectum, it's faith-seeking understanding. And I think not just in theology in the church, but more widely in society, there's been a realisation in the last 30 or 40 years that something is missing, that we're seeing the world wrong, that we're not right to think of the world as entirely a set of physical objects and relations which are the kind of thing that science can do. But there are other things to know, and uh, imagination helps us to know things, that it's a truth-bearing faculty. And I think it's very striking that in a so-called secular age, in fact, certainly the rising generation, even if they've lost faith or they don't go to church, turn powerfully and frequently to the arts, to music, to painting, to film particularly, to get some sense of what the meaning of life actually is. C.S. Lewis, so prophetic in so many ways, did put his finger on this quite early and realised that reason and uh, imagination need each other because they are asking and answering different but complementary questions. So famously, he said, 
reason is the natural organ of truth, but imagination is the organ of meaning. And I think there's been a problem for this even in theology. Certain Christians, having come up with a particular formula, say about the cross or how we say, say, right, we now have the truth and all we have to do is keep repeating it endlessly without actually opening our hearts and minds to explore what that truth really means for us personally. And of course, that's where we need poetry and it's why churches have never been able to do without song and why so much of the Bible is poetry and why Jesus had poetry on his lips from the beginning to the end because he was reciting the Psalms. I mean, Jesus essentially achieved, and the very act of this enormous and astonishing loving sacrifice, he's reciting poetry from the cross. Even in his desolation, he's reciting poetry. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So I don't think it's an innovation that now we should bring poetry fully back into our life as Christians and into the life and worship of the church. I think it's simply a recovery. Uh, We have, as it were, been subject to a great divorce, uh, to borrow Blake's and Lewis's uh, phrase. And uh, really, we, you know, what God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. We have somehow to bring a reason and imagination, our quarrelling parents, to reconcile them and bring them back together again. And I think that is, in fact, happening in all kinds of different ways. You made the observation that we've just come out of that grand cycle of seasons, Advent, Christmastide, Epiphany, in which we typically spend a good bit of time in the first two chapters of the Gospel according to Luke. There's a good deal of poetry, verse, and song in those two chapters. What with the Magnificat, the Song of Zechariah, Song of Simeon, and the Angelic, Glory to God in the highest, sung to the shepherds in the fields. And so I asked, Malcolm, any thoughts as to why Luke leans so heavily into verse in that way? And what might we have to learn from that? Well, of course, I was just remarking that the Bible throughout is full of poetry. But you're very right to highlight particularly the way the opening chapters of Luke pick up on poetry so much. I think there's a lyrical note to Luke. Luke's a very interesting gospel because although Luke, one of the synoptics, has some of the material in common, of course, with the other two synoptics, Luke brings other things to the table. Luke seems to be particularly good at asking and listening and uh, giving voice to the otherwise voiceless. I mean, with the Magnificat and the whole story of the visitation, we're clearly hearing women's voices, both Elizabeth's and Mary, this much older woman and this very much younger woman. And that's part of a whole tone in Luke in which he hears what the marginalised are saying. He particularly, he was a Gentile himself, of course, coming to a, a Christian gospel that was coming out of Judaism, realising that this was for him as well but also that the things he'd learned in the Gentile world could be brought to bear on it. And of course, he was a companion of Paul, and I think he he was part of the glorious way in which Paul saw that Christ had broken down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. But I wonder if that capacity that he had to hear another voice, a different voice, and to give it space and let it speak and see how it fitted into the larger story, whether that's not also one of the gifts of poetry and the gifts of the poet, that all poetry, before it can be composed, must begin with listening, with hearing, as it were, the music in somebody else's story. So I think Luke makes all that he can of that, but he's by no means uh, unique in, in wanting to bring 
poetry into his narrative. Uh, there's, of course, a very long history in the English language of poets learning from, drawing from, understanding the stories in the Bible as not only stories of their time and not only stories of our time, but archetypal stories, stories that go deep within us as well as deep back into history and looking forward to the future. And there's a very long tradition going back to the almost mythical poet Cadman, who's referred to in Bede's History of the English Church and People, of poets finding their inspiration in scripture, I was very moved the other day to uh, be invited by some nuns at the convent in Whitby in Yorkshire, in North Yorkshire, to uh, read them poetry and reflect with them on the poetry of the scriptures, the poetry of Advent, in a convent dedicated to St Hilda, because it was St Hilda of Whitby uh, in the in the 7th century who heard this Anglo-Saxon speaking man, probably not ordained or one of the monks, but just one of the people who helped with the beasts and the animals, hearing him recite poetry and realising that she needed that poetry and, and training him and bringing him forward. So the first named recorded English poet did his thing at Whitby and, as I say, I had this wonderful experience of going back to that very spot, called as a poet myself by nuns whose convent is named after, after Hilda. So it's a long tradition, and it's a tradition I'm very happy to be part of and to try and augment and adorn, if I can, in, in my own small way. I then made note of the fact that Malcolm has worked a good bit with our mutual friend Steve Bell over the past several years, that my sense has always been that it's been a very good thing for the both of them, personally and artistically. And so I asked, what does the poet bring to the singer-songwriter and in turn, what does the singer-songwriter offer back? Ah, I'm always happy to hear the name of Steve Bell. Uh, my friendship and working relationship with Steve over, uh, I must be coming up for the past de decade, has been you know, one of the real gifts and joys of my life in these, these last 10 years or so. I'm very impressed by him as a musician and songwriter and his brilliance on the guitar, but even more impressed with him as a person. So it's been very good for both of us. It was an astonishing experience for me when I'd begun to send him one or two verses to have him just send me back shortly afterwards. One of my poems turned into a song, by which I don't mean simply sung as with nothing done to my verse. I think that would have been all right, but not remarkable. What I really delighted in with Steve was the way he could see what I'd already done and then make something new of it. The Irish poet Seamus Heaney has a lovely line in a poem about how he discerned his own vocation as a poet, which is a poem, uh, it's called Personal Helicon, and it's a poem about all the different wells and bodies of water in round the farmyard of his childhood. And of some wells, he says, Others had echoes, gave back your own voice with a clean new music in it. And that was very much my experience with Steve, that he gave me back my own voice with a, a clean new music in it. And, of course, he heard different things in the poetry. And eventually we got to the point, in fact, quite quickly we got to the point where he was bold enough and I was happy enough for him to say about a poem, maybe you could do more with this, maybe I can hear something that you can't hear. I mean, the, the best example of that would be I had a little three-verse poem called Descent, which contrasted the the classic gods of Mount Olympus with the extraordinary humility and self-emptying of Jesus, who God comes down in Christ, whereas the other gods ascend. And Steve said, oh, you know, it's okay, but actually for the song, I, 
I really need more verses. I want to do the verses in pairs and um, challenge me to write another three verses for it. And whilst generally speaking, poetry is improved by being pared down, on this particular occasion, Steve was absolutely right, and it's a much better poem as well as a, a good song as a result of Steve's request. So he certainly offered something back to me. I think I, what I've offered to him is ideas and lyrics and images that he can work with. And what he's offered me, really, is a sense that more than one melody is possible with a poem. I write songs myself, and I always feel that when I'm writing a song, I need pay less attention, in a sense, to the metre and sound of the words, because the music is going to do work as well. Whereas when I write a poem, I'm trying to keep the music inside it. But Steve has a way of hearing more musical possibilities in the poem itself than I had heard, and I find that very instructive and exciting and I expect we're, we're going to actually be teaching a thing together this summer in Vancouver on the seasons and something always sparks when we get together I'm sure new things will continue to emerge for both of us. I then made the somewhat bold request that Malcolm read to us sharing from his comfortable home in Cambridge some of his own work and so here it is his response was very generous. Well, I'd like, if I may, to read you a couple of poems from my new book, After Prayer. That book opens with a sequence of sonnets responding to just one poem by George Herbert, George Herbert's uh, fam famous poem, Prayer, which is a list of wonderful phrases, each of which is an emblem of prayer. So it begins, the, the prayer, the church's banquet, angel's age, God's breath in man returning to his birth. The soul in paraphrase, heart in pilgrimage, and it goes on like that with 26 very beautiful images of prayer. And there are two in sequence, both of which turn on the idea of music, so that seems an appropriate pair to read. So Herbert's poem has the, the two lines, the six days world transposing in an hour, a kind of tune which all things hear and fear. And I wrote a pair of sonnets related to each other, Picking up on this musical metaphor, I love the idea of prayer as transposition. We all know what it's like sometimes to be confronted with a piece of music which is out of our range. We can't sing it, but if somebody will play it, but if somebody transposes it, whilst it remains the same music and the same intervals and, and tempo, suddenly it makes sense and becomes manageable and becomes part of our, our repertoire. And sometimes that's what prayer does with the unmanageable experience of the week. Anyway, I'll read you these two poems, one after another, as a kind of sequence to pair. The Six Days World, Transposing in an Hour. 24-7 in the Six Days World, in endless cycles of unnerving news, relentlessly our restless hurts are hurled through empty cyberspace. Is there no muse to make of all that pain an elegy? or in those waves of white noise, to discern Christ's inner cantus firmus, that deep tone that might give rise at last to harmony. We may not seal it off or drown it out, nor close our hearts down in the hour of prayer, but listening through dissonance and doubt, wait in the space between until we hear a change of key a secret chord disclosed, a kind of tune, and all the world transposed. A kind of tune. 
a kind of tune, a music everywhere and nowhere, love's long, lovely undersong, a trace in time, a grace note in the air, born to us from the place where we belong, on every passing breeze and in the breath of every creature, all things hear and fear. For faintly, through our fall, we too may hear the strong song of the sun that undoes death. And one day we will hear it unimpaired, the joy of all the sorrowful, the song of all the saints who cry how long, the hidden hope of all who have despaired. He sang it to his mother in the womb, and now it echoes from his empty tomb. Along with his many gifts, Malcolm Geit brings a gift of friendship. One of my fondest memories was sitting around a fire in the backyard of Ren and Ingrid Martin's home in Winnipeg. Sipping wine with a group of friends, Malcolm happily puffing on his pipe and regaling us with stories and with wonderful poems recited from memory. Doesn't get much better than that. This has been a Rua episode of the St. Benedict's Table podcast. Rua episodes are intended to be gifts to the wider church with the name Rua, Hebrew for spirit, evoking the restless, innovative, searching, and creative presence emblematic of the Holy Spirit. If you would like to comment on this show or find out more about Malcolm Geit and his work, have a look at the show notes. I'm Jamie Howison. Thanks for listening.